do think that once interest rates plateau and we get some stability there and then prices move in such a way to where cap rates are again higher than interest rates, you're gonna see um, a lot of buying activity. And the other dynamic we have is because interest rates have gone up so fast, in a lot of single family rental markets, renting a house is now like 30% less expensive on a monthly base, basis than buying a house is. And so people who are looking at like, look, I, I no longer can live or wanna live in an apartment, I need to live in a house. Because of the evolution of this asset class, they have a choice, they can rent it or they can buy it. And I believe that there's going to now be a lot more demand to rent homes just by virtue of the price of owning has gone up. Welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. As per usual, we're your hosts. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. So... A little later on, you're going to hear from Doug Bryan with Mind, who's here with us to chat about the single-family rental market. But first, Bella, I have a question for you. Can you guess how many rent-stabilized units are apparently sitting empty in New York City? (laughs) I have no idea. Um, Let's just say, I know the answer theoretically should be zero, but let's just say 10,000. Okay. No, you're wrong. It's 60,000, which, you know, is unfortunate. So back in April, a landlord group, CHIP, released this early estimation that there could be as many as 20,000 units sitting empty. And they tied those vacancies to the restrictions that the 2019 rent law put on rent hikes. And then last week, we got this internal state memo from the housing agency, and it showed that the number last year was actually 60,000. Wow. Okay. A serious underestimation. So so why? Right. So that's up for debate. The landlord's argument is that they can't afford to fix up the units. Tenants typically stay in rent-stable apartments for as long as they can because it's a great deal. So when an owner gets it back, it can be in bad shape. And a few landlords that I've talked to said a gut renovation can run as high as $100,000. Meanwhile, the rent law that passed in 2019, it cut off most of the routes that landlords had to raise the rents. And the raises that they are allowed, if they make improvements, they're pretty small. So it's like $15,000 over 15 years. Compare that to a $100,000 renovation job. It's like you're losing money, basically. But tenants, they don't buy that. They're arguing that landlords are just holding these units ransom to manipulate the legislature into changing the rent laws. Um, And they've also said that a renovation should not cost $100,000. One elected was like, that should only be the case if they're using gold paint. Wow. Yeah, we've done a few pretty wild political stories over the last couple weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, Our reporter in Chicago, Sam Lounsbury, had the story about how lenders who were buying delinquent property taxes can back out of deals based on super, super small paperwork errors, and they won't lose a dime. Mm. For example, one buyer had backed out of a foreclosure after a document that he had filled out himself misstated an amount by three cents. A judge then agreed to return the buyer's money because of the error. In some cases, these tax buyers can recoup the entire principal back, often with interest. Apparently, it's a statewide issue, too, but these tax buyers are really capitalizing on it. Well, that, I mean, that's crazy. You notice a three cent error on paper and suddenly you've got your money back plus more. Oh, I mean, that also reminds me of what is going on in Santa Monica. Can you get into that a little bit? 
Yeah, so we're actually going to be going into detail about this next week. We're going to do a whole episode about it. But basically, the city of Santa Monica is set to get more than 4,000 new apartment units. One project is actually a 15-story apartment tower. And none of these projects will have to get approval from city council or the planning commission. Oh, my God. That's like a miracle. How is that possible? So... Basically, it took a little bit of time for my colleague and Trevor and I to sort through this. <laughs> it's a little complex, but under state law, cities in California need to outline housing goals. They need to be able to add a certain number of units per year. Santa Monica was set to draft up a new plan, and they did, but the state rejected it last year. They said, come back with a new one. Mm-hmm. So there were several months where the city was not in compliance with the state law. Okay. So what's the penalty for that? Right. That's the catch and something that the city didn't really seem to realize Basically, if a city is not in compliance, developers can submit applications. They're called builder's remedy projects, and they're totally exempt from city review. They're automatically approved. Um, Okay, so that's what the developers did in Santa Monica. Yeah, exactly. A few developers took advantage of this and submitted plans for all these projects. And because the city was not in compliance, they're automatically approved. Boom, done. Wow. Okay, I'm so interested to hear more about that next week so we are absolutely in earnings season i covered four earnings last week it's a lot it was tiring but i know a lot more about the market now it's the first time we're getting a look at how rising rates and the looming threat of recession is impacting companies some are faring better than others, but, you know, a few are struggling. I think the biggest shift that I saw was Blackstone. I covered on Thursday. The investment giant reported virtually no profit, so $2.3 million, and that's after the firm had raked in $1.4 billion in the same quarter last year. And just for context, I mean, Blackstone was doing amazing throughout the pandemic. I remember reporting like two, three, four earnings in a row where it was just like blasting through records. So it's, it is, it's a, it's a sea change. The CEO, Steven Schwartzman, said that macroeconomic stressors have, quote, have created an extremely difficult environment for investors to navigate. Capital costs more, and the firm has struggled to offload assets, particularly their real estate assets. It's, it's looking a little rough out there for them. Right. Yeah, that's a really drastic difference. And obviously, you know, last year was this insane year for real estate. But the differences are really astounding. Um, I haven't listened to as many earnings calls as you have, but I did tune in to Prologis' earnings on Wednesday. And they said they are starting to operate their business as if they're in an economic slowdown. But they haven't really felt a super strong negative impact on their operations yet. Prologis CEO Hamid Mogadam was pretty resistant to any speculation that Amazon's pullback from the industrial market, which is something that Amazon has said that they've been doing for a while now, was impacting Prologis at all. He also said, and I thought this was interesting, The consumer is in great shape. The consumer balance sheets are in great shape. So I see a lot of reasons uh, for optimism. I mean, look at all these calls that we were all having uh, a quarter ago. I think the psychology has changed dramatically because of all this aggressive uh, Fed action. If you had asked me last quarter, what's the probability of a recession in the next year? I would have told you 90-10. Today, I would go, I would go 60-40 or maybe 50-50. I think we're much closer in the U.S. And that's that's an interesting contrast to you know what some of other 
chief executives in the space have said. You know, J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon has said he's expecting a recession. David Solomon at Goldman Sachs has said the same thing. So it was an interesting perspective. Yeah. No, it, it reminds me of being at Nari last week and we were looking at the Realtor.com panel and there was such a split. Some people are like, yes, absolutely. Those two declining quarters of GDP and other people were like, we need to see unemployment rise, unfortunately, to be able to call it a recession. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Going to the, back to the industrial market, you know, it's been crazy hot. We're well aware of that. I think also to your point, you know, speaking about Prologis not really feeling that pain yet. Blackstone said something similar. They're seeing rent increases of 30% on their logistics portfolio. That's really buoying their real estate assets, even where, you know, others might be, um, other sectors might be suffering a bit more. And, you know, vacancy is still extremely low in some markets. So even if demand wanes a little bit, Prologis might not feel it just yet. In other news, Times Square is a few steps closer to getting a casino, which is just what Times Square needs. As if Times Square doesn't already have enough going on. (laughs) Yeah, let's make it a little crazier. The city's largest landlord, SL Green, teamed up with Caesars Entertainment to rally up interest for a new Caesars Palace in Times Square. And the proposed casino would be built at 1515 Broadway on West 44th Street, which is already home to a Broadway theater. SL Green already has casino competition, though, so related companies proposed to partner up with Wynn Resorts to build a casino in Hudson Yards. Everyone just, you know, wants a piece of the pie, making big bets on that industry. (laughs) That's a good pun. So today we have Doug Bryan from Mind here to give an update on the single family rental sector amid the economic uncertainty we're seeing. But first, a message from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Dotted, the all-in-one asset optimization platform that's empowered companies like Dogwood to grow their portfolio by 2.5x in just 18 months. See how Dotted can align your team and accelerate data-driven portfolio growth in leasing and beyond by going to Dotted.com, D-O-T-T-I-D.com. So, Doug, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, um, thanks for having me on the show. We did an episode about a year ago on single-family rentals, and someone on the show had talked about how the asset class really emerged 10 or so years ago because of technology. New technology made it possible for people and you know firms to own a number of different properties across a large area. You didn't have to buy up houses along one street for it to work. Can you talk a little bit about that? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I was there. <laughs> I got to sit in the in the front row of, of, of that movie. Um, so yeah, I actually started my real estate career really in about 2008 when my partner and I, Colin, were looking at the single family rental market and just, you know, these houses that the banks were kind of giving away. Like no one was interested in buying. Prices had plummeted. We... Um, were kind of like, like new enough to be dangerous, I would say. We talked to a lot of real estate experts and they're like, for all the reasons you just said, that's a terrible idea. You can never scale it. And my partner is an engineer and we started looking at houses and being a little skeptical of what they were saying. And what we realized was, you know, there was two new technologies at the time, cloud computing and mobile computing that I don't think these, you know, quote unquote, experienced real estate investors really understood the impact of because what it allowed you to do was basically 
buy and manage a lot of homes that were spread out because you could now have a, a system, a database in the cloud where you could have your team out in the market with full access to all the data they needed. They could be inputting data that you know, folks in a centralized office could be also looking at and, and just being able to leverage that technology plus an amazing buying opportunity to us was really the, the catalyst and the impetus to start buying houses ourselves. So in my prior company, Waypoint, we bought 17,000 homes in 13 different markets across the U.S. over a roughly seven and a half year period. And it was, it was hard because literally almost nobody thought it was possible to, to scale. And so it's pretty cool to be sitting here now in 2022. It's like it's a commercial real estate asset class now. When you first started in the sector, was there hesitancy among investors or skepticism? I would say hesitancy and skeptical is, is an understatement. I mean, we were able to, after four or five years, start to convince. I mean, I give the Columbia University Endowment a lot of credit. Like they were one of the first institutions to like, you know, dip a toe into the market. We ended up doing our first private equity deal in 2000, late 2011 with GI Partners. I give them a lot of credit. I mean, others came in, Blackstone, Colony. It was really kind of the op more opportunistic private equity money that came in first. But I remember in like 2012, 2013, myself and one of the partners at GI Partners went up to Sacramento and met with CalSTRS, like, you know, huge institutional investor they buy real estate all over every asset class and they i still don't think i still don't think that they've invested in single family yet it was like you know talk to me when you have a decade of operating results and so yeah there was a, a ton of hesitancy and it, it was really centered around we really like to see 10 years of operating results i mean you know, if you're a fiduciary for like pension funds, meaning firefighters and teachers, like it's a, it's a big responsibility. Like they can't go lose money. So they're very conservative. And those, those investors really just have entered the market in like the last year. It kind of took that 10 plus years of operating results and then the asset class performing really well during COVID to attract that kind of capital. Right. Yeah, I've definitely seen a lot of talk about Blackstone leading the charge, right? They bought Home Partners of America and own a number of single-family rentals, and I'm sure that that helped investors follow suit. They helped us. You know, they helped a lot. I mean, we we were buying in 2009. They came in like three years later and came in with a ton of capital. For sure, Blackstone coming in was kind of a a big um, important validator in the evolution of the asset class. So during the pandemic, single family rentals were a very attractive asset class. And now the general environment has changed, right? Interest rates are up. There are fears of a recession. Inflation is still high. What happened across the sector when interest rates first started to rise over the summer? I mean, in general, when you're a real estate investor, you want to buy at a cap rate or an unlevered yield, kind of dividing the you know, net operating income by the total cost of the property, like that would be your unlevered return. Like, so say it's 4%, like four, four and a half percent was a pretty typical um, unlevered yield. You wanna borrow at an interest rate that's lower than that. Like that's thought that's considered positive leverage. Like I'm gonna buy something that pays me four and a half and I'm gonna borrow at three and a half. Like, that's a one point spread, like that's a good investment. Well, 
what's happened is interest rates have run up so quickly in the backdrop of a you know relatively illiquid market where prices move a lot more slowly in real estate to where now you have negative leverage or you we very quickly got in a situation where there was negative leverage so it's like you know maybe now i'm looking to buy more like a five cap but i have to borrow it over a six like that is not a compelling value proposition for a real estate investor so it has had a pretty material impact on demand um, you're seeing a lot of slowdown. I mean, I think homeowners just are flat out slowing down because the relative price of owning a home has gone up by so much. Um, and investors who want to own properties as investment properties have also slowed down. But I do think that once interest rates plateau and we get some stability there and then prices move in such a way to where cap rates are, again, higher than interest rates, you're going to see um, a lot of buying activity because single family still is a very um, good risk adjusted place to, to park money. Um, it's historically done well in inflationary periods. You can reset rents every year. We're, you know, four to five million homes short of from a supply perspective in this country. And that problem is not going to get solved anytime soon. And the other dynamic we have is because interest rates have gone up so fast in a lot of single family rental markets, renting a house is now like 30% less expensive on a monthly basis than buying a house is. And so people who are looking at like, look, I, I no longer can live or want to live in an apartment. I need to live in a house because of the evolution of this asset class. They have a choice. They can rent it or they can buy it. And I believe that there's going to now be a lot more demand to rent homes just by virtue of the price of owning has gone up. So it's still going to be a compelling place to invest capital. I just think right now when interest rates are going up at a pretty fast clip, it's it's hard to invest right now. We're also seeing rents start to plateau in some markets. At least they're not growing at the same pace they were in 2021. Single digit growth rather than double digit growth. Can you talk about what you're seeing in terms of rents for single family homes right now? Yeah, we are seeing them slow down for sure. But, you know, you also got to remember what time of year it is. So as we head in towards Thanksgiving, like seasonality is, is very much a factor in this market. And so you typically see rents start to taper plateau during this, this time of the year. In terms of like the overall economy, I mean, the reality is... If you just kind of look at the, the individual consumer in the U.S., savings rates are still high. Um, unemployment is still very low. It's like 3.5% employment. Wage growth has still been there. I mean, these are all things that could and I would say, you know, are probably likely to change. But um, today, I personally feel like it's more of a seasonality thing. But I do think that we, you know, in 2023 and maybe even to 2024 are definitely going to see um, slower rental growth rates than certainly we have in the past. Have you had to explain this to investors that rents are starting to slow and in some markets even drop? And do they understand that? Yeah, I mean, I think the kind of investors that we typically work with are longer term oriented investors. And just going back to what I was saying is like, look, there's a housing shortage. Um, more people want to rent because they want flexibility. More pe- it's going to make more sense for people to rent, for more people to rent just because 
the cost of buying is now higher. So it's just going to be more affordable. And so rent demand is going to be there and rents are, are going to grow. I don't think anybody thought, you know, 15, 20% um, annual rent growth was something that would ever be sustainable. And anytime you see that kind of a spike, you're typically going to see some kind of a, a fall in the, in the future. So. so tell me a little bit about Mind, about your technology. What exactly does the firm do? So there's, you know, three things I would highlight about our our technology. First, and I think maybe most importantly, is kind of having an end-to-end service platform, which, you know, on the surface might not sound like a lot, but if you really dive into single-family rental and kind of how it's worked in the past, you're, you're trying to find a broker who buys a property, and then you go to try to find somebody to finance the property, and then it's like, oh, I better find a manager if I don't live near my property and who am I going to have do that and how sophisticated are they? Do they have good visibility into operating metrics? Are they going to do a good job managing? It's a very high friction experience. And so by having our all-in-one platform, we basically do all those services within one company. So you're coming to us, we help you pick the market, buy the property, finance it, insure it, do a renovation if we need to, and then also manage it. And then when you get to the management part, I think Part of what's um, historically been frustrating is getting a hold of your property manager and finding out what's going on with your property and having confidence and trust that it's being managed well. So what we've done is created um, an app. All of our investors have an app with live real-time data. So instead of calling your property manager, if you have a vacant home and saying, hey, how's it going? You can literally look at data and see how many leads, how many showings, how many applications. This is the demand data that tells you how your property is doing. And you can just like look at it anytime, anywhere. It's on the app. You can contact your property manager if you have questions about that. But like we're just trying to make it generally easier. And then the last piece I would um, highlight is the idea of self-showing. So this is like a relatively new innovation in residential real estate. This idea of like you don't have to meet a leasing agent at a home in order to see it. Got it. Okay. And are you committed to staying in the single family space or would you consider branching out into multifamily too? I would first say single family is like, it's the largest asset class within real estate. So about $4.6 trillion of asset value, um, about 17 million single family rentals in the U.S. So we definitely have our hands full with single family. Um, we do do some small apartment buildings because if you think about the the nature of managing a single family home and how most management companies typically think about managing a large apartment building, like there's some economies of scale with a 300 unit apartment building. You can put you know six full time people there and they can manage those 300 doors. Well, our 300 doors are spread out all across you know many square miles and so there's no economies of scale at any one property and so we do something that we call portfolio management style where basically like we have resources that we have to move around to different houses and we use technology and data to do that really efficiently i actually do believe and have had some conversations with large apartment owners that there's a world in the future where you know, we have that portfolio of three or 500 homes that we manage in a certain city. Well, why couldn't we throw in some couple hundred unit apartment buildings within that portfolio and manage it more in a portfolio style? So instead of 
having six full-time employees at the building. Maybe we have three or four, but we have our other resources moving around the portfolio and we can just you know, move them to the buildings to do things when they need to be done and effectively get it done in a more efficient way. But that is you know, definitely something that we would look at in the, in the future. One criticism of the single family rental space that comes up a lot is the idea that it's preventing wealth accumulation. You know, something that comes up quite a bit in in our world is, you know, this idea of the American dream. And um, look, I'm all about people owning owning homes. And, you know, sometimes people associate the single family rental um, asset class as like killing the American dream. And to me, it's a little different than that. It's really a, a reinventing of the American dream where I think, you know, I've seen a lot of data that suggests people still a lot of people still want to own homes. They're just choosing to do it later and maybe at a point in their life where they, you know, don't need the flexibility. They've saved up the assets so they don't have to put all their money into, you know, all their eggs into one basket. And because of this dynamic, I think single family rental fills a a place in that American dream. And we're helping people bridge the time between maybe when they lived in an apartment and when they ultimately settle down more and, you know, have a, you know, long-term stable job and, and want to own a home. And, and that's, and that's great. And I think the other piece that we're, that I'm actually interested on in trying to solve is, you know, one of the criticisms is, okay, well, if people aren't owning homes and they're not accumulating that wealth and by virtue of what we're doing, and eventually I'd like for mine to go into fractional ownership and, you know, then it doesn't take fifty, seventy-five, or a hundred thousand dollars to buy a house. You could literally own a piece of a house for five hundred dollars or less. And now all of a sudden, we can be working with our renters who are, you know, desiring the flexibility of renting, but offering them one of the perks of owning. And I think, in general, there's a reinventing of the American dream happening right now. And where we sit at Mind, I think, is at the epicenter of, and it, you know provides us an interesting opportunity. As always, Deconstruct airs every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, as we talked a little bit about earlier, we're discussing what on earth happened with Santa Monica and why the city is set to get more than 4,000 new units. Tune in then.